Wednesday, November 7th, 2012, episode 24 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Nation Today podcast with yours truly, Alex Streamer, available every Wednesday for your listening pleasure on footballnation.com and for your downloading convenience in the iTunes store. Please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast and the other shows available on footballnation.com in the iTunes store if you have yet to do so. Today is Wednesday, November the 7th of 2012, the day after Election Day. Hopefully you all were able to make it out yesterday and cast your ballots for your, uh, for your candidates of choice. Of course, I'm recording this edition of Football Nation today uh, prior to the final re- election results on Tuesday evening. But if the election did not go the way you wished, if your candidate lost the presidency, if a senatorial candidate you were fired up about didn't get a seat, didn't retain his or her seat, uh, if the election did not go your way, and if you're a little frustrated today, uh, hopefully I can alleviate some of your pain, provide a bit of a distraction to you, the election is now over, unless we have a 2000 situation all over again, which would be a nightmare for all of us. Uh, so we are slowly but surely returning to normalcy. And what is more normal than sitting around and talking some football, huh? While you're supposed to be working especially. I highly encourage uh, you to listen to this podcast while you are supposedly at work. Because that's, uh, that's, uh, that's what we advocate for here. At Football Nation today. But we have a lot to get into this episode, as always, recapping the latest events around the National Football League. In the first down segment, taking a look at the biggest on field stories of the past week in the NFL. And I have a series of questions uh, to ask, and I will answer them. And hopefully, you all get involved in the show, answering them as well. Feel free to fill out a comment on our show page on footballnation.com. Also, feel free to send me an email, areamer at bu.edu is my email address, and at alexreamer1 is my Twitter name. If you want to get in touch with me there, I'll ask a series of questions, give my thoughts on them, and then hopefully, again, once you hear this show, you will feel propelled to give your thoughts on these matters. Uh, Then in the second down segment, uh, Sean Payton, of course. Uh, It was rumored over the weekend that his contract will be voided by the NFL because it contains a clause that says he could nix the extension if general manager Mickey Loomis is fired or left the organization. The NFL feels that is a dangerous precedent to set, and rumor has it, though they have not confirmed it, uh, that they are set to void Sean Payton's contract with the Saints after this season. And I tell you, in the second down segment, where we look at the biggest off-field NFL story of the week, uh, that, you know what, that may be a blessing in disguise, because I don't think Sean Payton should be under contract at all with the New Orleans Saints. That guy is dirty. He's beyond dirty. He should be out of there already. I'll explain further in the second down. Third down segment, it's our big up slowdown. I say a statement and then express my disagreement with it by saying slow down or my agreement with it by saying big up. Uh, we talked about everything today from the Patriots acquiring Aqib Tlaib at the trade deadline last week to the Giants and Steelers game from this past Sunday and if we can take anything from it. And Rex Ryan was voted the most overrated coach in the league. Is that true? We'll talk about that. Then in the fourth down segment, it's the Reamer rant. Speaking of the trade deadline, uh, it's not a big deal at all in the National Football League. And frankly, I'm pissed off about that. It should be a big deal. It's the NFL. The trade deadline is great in every other sport. 
Why isn't it an event in the National Football League? We'll talk about that as well. It's Football Nation Today, episode 24 on footballnation.com. We'll be right back. My name is Alex Reamer. Welcome back, Football Nation Today, episode 24. Let's get to the first down segment. As I said in the opening, going to ask uh, you folks out there, the listeners, a couple of questions. And as uh, and as you uh, mull, uh, mull over your responses, uh, I'll provide you what my thoughts with, and we'll see if you agree with me or disagree with me. This is how I prefer to have conversations with people into the abyss over the internet. Uh, question number one. The Atlanta Falcons are now 8-0 after beating the Dallas Cowboys 19-13 in Atlanta on Sunday night. Do the Falcons get enough respect? Hmm. Good question, Alex. Um, yes. My answer is yes. The Falcons do get enough respect. They are considered one of the better teams in the NFC, which they are. There's no denying that. But can we unequivocally say they are the best team in the NFC, or the best team in football? We can say they're one of the best teams, but are they the best team? Can we unequivocally say that at this juncture? I don't think you can. I mean, can you absolutely say the Falcons are better than the 7-1 Chicago Bears? Can you say they're better than the San Francisco 49ers? Or hell, even now the Packers and Giants. Can you say the Falcons are unequivocally Better than those two teams who have won the past two Super Bowls? Plus, 8-0, frankly. Isn't that incredible anymore? An undefeated record through the midway point of the season does not get me all jazzed up. We've seen it recently. We've seen the Patriots go 18-1. We've seen the Colts make an unbeaten run. And if they didn't punt the final game of the season or final games of the season, they probably would have gone 16-0 a couple of years ago. We've even seen the Packers make an extended, unbeaten run recently. It's not as rare as it once was. And I think that's because there are a lot of bad teams in the NFL today. A lot of bad teams that make a lot of bad mistakes, that struggle to win on the road, etc. Now, the Falcons are a dangerous team. There is no denying that. And as I said last week on the show, I think the Falcons possess the ingredients to win. In today's NFL, they've opened up the offense under a new offensive coordinator. Uh, Matt Ryan is throwing the ball way more this season than he has in previous seasons. And he has terrific weapons to throw to down the field, from Roddy White to Julio Jones uh, to Tony Gonzalez at tight end. Ryan's very mobile in the park as well. He has a solid, not great, but a solid running back to rely on, and Michael Turner still. Uh, I think the Falcons' offense is potentially one of the more dynamic offenses in the league, especially at home in the Dome, which they will play at least a couple of playoff games in because they currently have the best record in the NFC. Uh, their defense is without cornerback Brent Grimes, but I think Dante Robinson and Asante Samuel have done more than a fine job in the secondary. I think John Abraham remains a very good pass rusher when he is uh, when he's healthy and when he's uh, at 100. Um, percent You know, I think they have a solid enough linebacking core. I think the Falcons' defense isn't great, but it certainly possesses enough playmakers. And of course, in today's NFL, 
That's the most important thing in regards to a defense. Having enough playmakers, corners who can jump around, defensive ends like Abraham who can get to the passer, create pressure in the pocket, collapse the pocket. Uh, and the Falcons possess all of those ingredients. They possess the ingredients to win and win in the playoffs in today's NFL. In today's NFL. But they do have an unproven record in the playoffs. Matt Ryan's career postseason record is 0-3. Uh, and because of that, and again, the fact, the NFC has a lot of great teams. Chicago, San Francisco, I'll still throw the Giants in there. The Packers are now 6-3. and three. They're on a roll after bottoming out against Indianapolis a couple of weeks ago. Um, the, 49, uh, the Falcons are one of the best teams in the NFC. They're one of the best teams in the league. But I don't think you can unequivocally say they are the best team in the league. And also, they haven't really beaten anybody. They've beaten Kansas City. They beat Denver in Week 2, and the Broncos of Week 2 are not the same Broncos today. of today. They beat the Chargers in Week 3. Then they beat Carolina, Washington, Oakland, three suck-bag teams, as I like to say. Philly sucks, as you saw again on Monday night. And Dallas, who suck, as you saw on Sunday night. So they haven't really beaten anybody yet either. It's a rather unimpressive 8-0, just in terms of schedule strength. Speaking of the Cowboys, after another loss to Atlanta last night, they fall further under 500. Do they stand a chance at making the postseason? Uh, no, they do not. They absolutely do not. Uh, they didn't before, and they certainly don't now after that loss to the Falcons. They had a, what a horrible game plan they had on Sunday night, huh? I mean, my goodness. I understand Jason Garrett wanting to get back to bases, uh, basics after the six-turnover game two weeks ago and the four interceptions that Romo threw against the Giants, I understand Garrett's, uh, you know, Garrett wanting to get back to basics on offense. But getting back to basics does not mean reverting the playbook back to 1955, which is what it's felt like watching the Cowboys on Sunday. Uh, Romo threw a mini temper tantrum on the field midway through the fourth quarter after yet another three and out and three uh, consecutive running plays. Romo flailed his arms in the air. Come on, let me throw. And what happened later on in the fourth quarter? Romo finally did get to throw. He drove the Cowboys down the field, found Kevin Ogletree in the end zone for a touchdown. But that was it. That was really the only drive, even in the second half, that Tony Romo was given an, ex an, an extensive opportunity to throw the football. Uh, again, I understand the need to get back to basics after six turnover performance, a four interception performance, but getting back to basics in 2012 does not mean reverting the playbook back to the mid-1950s. It just doesn't. Uh, the Cowboys remain very poorly coached. They're thin at linebacker as well. I think the funniest story to come out of Dallas over the past couple of days is that owner Jerry Jones was unintentionally locked out of the locker room on Sunday, which is hilarious. And shows you how messed up that organization is that the owner feels the need to go down to the locker room to adjust the players after a tough primetime loss. Uh, that should be the coaching staff's area, not the owner's area. Uh, the Cowboys are... It's become a cliche to say they're underachievers, right? I mean, at what point do a bunch of anomalies become a trend? I don't think it's an anomaly anymore. The Cowboys are simply not a well-coached football team. They're not that well-prepared. They do not have a good game plan. They have talent in individual spots, but that talent just doesn't come together. And it's misused, and as a result, the Cowboys will miss the playoffs for yet another season. 
To a lesser extent, I know I didn't ask this question, the Eagles, we've done a lot of ranting about the Eagles over the past few weeks, so I'm not going to focus a lot of time on them today. But, do you see that loss of Monday night to New Orleans? The Saints were willing to give the game away in the second half, right? They fumbled the football. Mike Vick finds Deshaun Jackson for a touchdown. In, for a touchdown. Beautiful long pass. Then, ensuing kickoff. Saints fumble again. Eagles get the ball in the New Orleans red zone. They can only muster a field goal out of it, but okay. They've now scored 10 unanswered points. They have some momentum. The Saints seem to be falling apart. And then the Eagles defense falls on its face and allows New Orleans to drive down the field. And the very next drive, score a touchdown, and the game is out of reach. It was 21-13, then it goes to 28-13, and the game's out of reach. Just like that. We talk a lot about Mike Vick and the failures of him and his failures and the failures of the Eagles offensive line and the failures of the offense this season. And, you know, I think a lot of those complaints are valid. But the defense is bad there, too. It's real bad. And you saw it again on Monday night. The offense puts up 10 unanswered points. The Saints seem to be on the verge of giving the game away. And in the very next drive, boom, Drew Brees and the Saints march down the field, score a touchdown, make it once again a two-possession ball game, and at that stage in the fourth quarter, game over. The NFC East, always heralded as one of the NFL's toughest and best divisions, not the case this year. That's a Giants division to just run away with. Are the Denver Broncos the second best team in the AFC? This is another debate we've gone back and forth on over the past couple weeks here on the show. And I'm here to tell you that right now, as of this recording, yes, if I had to put money on it, I would say the Broncos are the second best team in the AFC behind Houston. Peyton Manning overcame two late interceptions to lead them past Cincinnati last week. He rolled out of the pocket, rolled to his right, found Joel Dreesen in the corner of the end zone. Beautiful throw. And then he found Derek Decker late for the touchdown that sealed it. Uh, Peyton Manning is on a roll right now. He is clicking like you would not believe with that Denver offense. He's using his tight ends, Tammy and Dreesen well. Demarius Thomas and Eric Decker, Brandon Stokely, especially Decker. Manning and Decker really seem to have something going on. Uh, and the biggest thing with Denver is this. That defense is not a great defense, but they're a defense that is built to play with a lead. What do I mean by that? They have two guys in Von Miller, you saw him make an impact on Sunday against Cincinnati, and Elvis Dumerville, who are great at rushing the passer. And of course, when do opposing teams pass? When they're behind. They also have a corner in Champ Bailey, who at his advanced age, is still, I think, one of the better playmakers back there. Made a big interception last Sunday against Cincinnati, too. The Denver defense is built to play with the lead. They have guys in Miller and Doomerville up front who can rush the passer, flush the pocket. And they have a cornerback there in Champ Bailey. A guy like Tony Carter's come out of nowhere. They have some cornerbacks who can make plays in the secondary as well. Jump routes, hit hard, etc. The Broncos defense is not a great defense, but it's built to play with the lead. And with Peyton Manning clicking like he's clicking, the Broncos defense is going to have a lot more leads to play with as the season enters its second half. Now, which team is the worst team in the NFL? Kansas City is the obvious choice here. They lost again, 31-13 to San Diego last Thursday night. They still haven't led in regulation this season. They turned the ball over an obscene amount of times, just awful. I, I saw a little bit of that game Thursday against San Diego, and I could barely watch it. Jarrett Johnson getting to Kansas City in the end zone, just terrible. My God. Um, but honorable mention goes to Jacksonville and Oakland. 
especially Oakland. I know they're on the West Coast. The games are a little later, so here on the East Coast, you don't necessarily see a lot of the Raiders, to quote Chris Berman. Uh, those are some great interviews he did the other night with Romney and Obama, huh? I mean, who was editing that? <laughs> That's like something out of, like, an introduction to editing class. Like, not even college level. I mean, do you see those hard cuts? Especially in the Obama interview. I mean, my goodness, could they have made it more obvious those were pre-recorded? Anywho, um, yeah, I noticed things like that. Um, can't get anything by me. Uh, and also, uh, you can seem to get any... Uh, but conversely, I should say, you can seem to get anything and everything by the Oakland defense. Uh, which allowed 250-plus running yards to Doug Martin on Sunday. A terrific draft pick by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who, some are saying, are now relevant again. They're back. They're great. Eh, well, yeah, they can score. I mean, Doug Martin's a beast at running back. Josh Freeman's having a much better year. Vincent Jackson is a legitimate number one wide receiver. Uh, but that defense can't stop a nosebleed. They gave up 32 points to Oakland and Carson Palmer last week. Uh, they cannot stop anybody. So, yeah, the Buccaneers are more entertaining now than they were last year. They're a high-scoring team, but they give up a lot of points, too. Well, let's pump the brakes a little bit on anointing a Greg Schiano's Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, you know, one of the resurgent teams of 2012. And the final question I want to pose to you here. Before we get on to our second down segment in my Sean Payton take, which I think a lot of you will be interested in. Um, if you had to win a game tonight, tonight, would you feel comfortable starting Andrew Luck? Now, notice the way I phrased the question. Not if you, you know, needed a quarterback for a year. Not if you wanted to, you know, have a quarterback for the next 10 years. I mean, then Andrew Luck would be a more obvious answer. No. If you had to win a game tonight... Would you feel comfortable starting Andrew Luck? And my answer is yes. My answer is absolutely yes. The Colts came back and beat Miami 23-20 on Sunday. Luck is becoming a marquee attraction. Their game in two weeks against the Patriots has been pushed back to a primetime 425 start on CBS. The Colts play Jacksonville next week, who did beat them earlier in the season, but Luck came back. Led the Colts to a game-winning drive in that one. The defense just gave it up. But let's say the Colts beat the Jaguars this week. They could be 6-3 and three heading into Foxborough to play the Patriots, who are facing off against the Bills this week. So they'll probably also be 6-3. and three. That's all of a sudden a marquee game in the AFC. Uh, and yeah, I would feel very comfortable starting Andrew Luck if I had to win a game tonight. Uh, you can cherry-pick some of his stats. You know, the... 56.5 completion percentage is admittedly is admittedly a little Mark Sanchez-esque. Uh, he has a 10 to 8 touchdown to interception ratio, but remember, a lot of those interceptions came earlier in the season. Luck was lobbing it up. The offensive line wasn't great, so not all of those are on him. But yeah, the completion percentage, TD to interception ratio, do look to be a little Mark Sanchez-esque. But then you dive a little deeper into numbers, you see that Luck has thrown for 2,404 yards, i.e. the same amount of yards Peyton Manning has thrown for. He broke the record for most passing yards by a rookie in a game last week, 400-plus yards. And, you know, just watch him. Just watch the games. And see how Andrew Luck commands himself, carries himself in the second half of these close ball games. Uh, he led them back against Green Bay a number of weeks ago. He led them back to win two weeks ago against Tennessee. The game uh, tying drive in the uh, fourth quarter and the game winning drive in overtime. Uh, this past week against Miami led them back in the second half as well. The game winning drive. What a beautiful throw up to T.Y. Hilton. And the amazing thing is too, and this is why you have to watch luck, uh, T.Y. Hilton, before he caught that touchdown pass, uh, dropped an easy one earlier in the game. But Luck wasn't rattled. 
Luck didn't uh, ice Hilton out of the game plan, which some young quarterbacks may have done. Come on, he dropped an easy touchdown pass. Uh, screw you, I'm not looking in your direction anymore. No. Luck didn't let that phase him. Hilton was open in the end zone again. Luck gave him a jump ball, and Hilton came down with the play. You know, I look at one of the final plays in that game, late in the fourth quarter. Andrew Luck is in the pocket. Cameron Wake, one of the better defensive ends in the game, comes in, has Luck by the feet. Andrew Luck is on his way down to the ground, but he still finds a way to find Reggie Wayne open in the middle of the field, picks up a key first down there. Uh, Andrew Luck's pocket presence is fantastic. He's great on third down. He has composure in the second half of these close games. He's already led the Colts back to victory. He's led the Colts to tie games on numerous occasions. He has the intangibles. He has the gravitas. He plays better when the pressure is on. That is already evident through the first eight weeks of his NFL career. It's easy to say if you had to pick a quarterback for the next decade, yeah, Andrew Luck. No, no. If I had to pick a quarterback to win tonight, tonight, if I had to win a game tonight, Andrew Luck would be much closer to the top of my list than the bottom. Just watch him over these past several weeks. Watch him through these first eight weeks. I think that is incredibly apparent, especially after performance like he had last Sunday against Miami. And a few weeks ago against Green Bay, and two weeks ago against Tennessee, etc., you get the picture. The guy is money late in the second half of these close games. Second down segment. It's time for the biggest off-field NFL story of the week. And the New Orleans Saints once again find themselves here, but not specifically for Bounty Gate. It has been rumored, and reports came out over the weekend, that Sean Payton's contract will be voided by the NFL because it contains a clause that says he could nix the deal, the deal meaning the extension, if general manager Mickey Loomis is fired or leaves the organization. Goodell said this week, quote, We told them, meaning the Saints, what the issue was with the contract they sent us. Now it's up to the team and Sean Payton. So Goodell not confirming these reports, but also not denying them. Um, and the deal, of course, would have kept Peyton in New Orleans through 2015. Now, Sean Peyton is an innovative football coach. He's a very good football coach. The Saints finished 3-13 and in 2005. He comes in in 2006, leads them to the playoffs in Drew Brees' first year. They then go 13-3 and in 2009 and win the Super Bowl over Indianapolis. And, of course, we all know the gutsy onside kick call, onside kick call to say the least, to begin the second half. Uh, I mean, gutsy to say the least, that onside kick call to begin the second half. We all remember that, one of the greatest coaching decision, in-game decisions in Super Bowl history. Uh, they then make the playoffs in both 2010 and 2011. However, they lost the first place playoff game they played in both those years, but still win the NFC South three consecutive years. They win the Super Bowl in 2009 and win the division again in 2010 and 2011. It's hard to win in this league, so let's give Sean Payton a lot of credit for that. And the way the Saints have seemingly collapsed this year without Payton, I think speaks to his value to that team and organization. Uh, okay, I'm not talking about Sean Payton as a football coach specifically. I'm talking about Sean Payton in the kind of program he runs as a football coach. In the kind of program Sean Payton runs is a dirty program. And it's the kind of program that should have no place in the NFL. And Sean Payton was suspended for a year because of the Bounty Gate scandal, which is disgusting enough. We don't need to rehash that. But Sean Payton is dirty for a number of other reasons. He should have arguably been out of New Orleans years before Bounty Gate. Let's go to Michael Ornstein. Sean Payton is best friends 
with this guy named Michael Ornstein. Who is Ornstein, you may ask? Well, Ornstein was a former marketing agent for Reggie Bush and pled guilty last June to federal charges involving a scheme to sell Super Bowl and NFL jerseys between 1998 and 2006. Here is a report from Deadspin last spring about Ornstein and his ties to the Saints and Peyton. Quote, as laid out in the Bill of Information, Ornstein and others, whose identities are known and unknown to the United States Attorney, obtained Super Bowl tickets from individuals who, through the course of their employment, had obtained Super Bowl tickets at face value. Okay, so obviously connected people to obtain Super Bowl tickets at face value. Uh, Ornstein and others then sold and distributed the Super Bowl tickets for profit. That activity took place in the Northern District of Ohio and elsewhere. The bill also states that Ornstein and others obtained NFL jerseys and used the United States mail to obtain and deliver NFL jerseys, uh, purported certificates of authenticity, and payments. From late 2000 to early 2001, Ornstein obtained false credentials of authenticity, representing them as NFL game worn. Ornstein and others then caused the jerseys to be cut into pieces that were affixed to trading cards, which were then sold purporting to contain pieces of NFL game worn jerseys. While not an official employee of the Saints, Ornstein has been a fixture at practices, games, and in the locker room since the Saints drafted Bush in April of 2006. He often wears team gear and is a regular presence on the sideline and on the field during practices. Last paragraph here, Peyton devoted a chapter in his recent book about how valuable an asset Ornstein was to the team during its Super Bowl championship season. Ornstein was a point man for the Saints during their trip to Miami for the Super Bowl, arranging everything from daily gifts for players and their wives to strategically placed Saint billboards throughout the city. Ornstein also helps Peyton with business arrangements outside of football, including the book deal and a movie script that Peyton was working on last year. Close quote. Hmm. So this Michael Ornstein guy is on Sean Peyton like white on rice. Always around, at least until uh, last spring, when he was indicted. Ornstein's scandal was he obtained Super Bowl tickets at face value and sold them for above face value. He distributed them for profit. You have to be awfully connected to obtain Super Bowl tickets for face value, huh? Hmm. The bill also states that Ornstein and others obtained NFL jerseys and then sold them off, you know, as being, you know, authentic, being played in games, etc. Hmm. You have to be awfully connected to obtain real NFL jerseys like that. Especially in large quantities. You have to know someone involved in the game. Hmm. Interesting. And why would Ornstein do all this for the Saints? You know, arranging their whole trip to Miami, buying gifts for players... Why would he arrange Sean Payton's businesses and, and book deals and movie scripts? What has Payton done for Ornstein, you may ask? Hmm. Just some questions to ponder. Now, here's another big one. After 2009, Payton was drawn into a prescription drug scandal involving Vicodin theft. You may vaguely remember this story, and you only vaguely remember it because the NFL turned a blind eye to it. According to Pro Football Talk in May of 2010, former Saints Director of Security Jeffrey Santini sued the team for constructive discharge. Santini alleges GM Mickey Loomis attempted to cover up evidence 
that Vicodin was being used and or stolen from the team drug locker by two senior staff members. Based on extensive discussions, the entire staff members were assistant, uh, the senior staff members were assistant coach Joe Vitt and Sean Payton. I'm reading again off Pro Football Talk. One had a painful condition and one didn't. According to sources, Vitt had the condition, not Payton. So Sean Payton and assistant coach Joe Vitt stealing Vicodin from the uh, drug locker and passing it around illegally to players and other team personnel. And general manager Mickey Loomis attempted to cover up evidence that Vicodin was being abused. Now you go back to Peyton's contract with the Saints. Isn't that strange, right? I mean, maybe you didn't think about this deep when you first heard it, but now take a step back. Why would a head coach in Sean Payton, with as much clout as he does, tie himself to the general manager? Why would he lend Mickey Loomis that kind of favor? Essentially guaranteeing that Loomis wouldn't be fired until 2015, because if Loomis leaves, Peyton can leave. Why would Sean Payton do that for Mickey Loomis? Does he owe Mickey Loomis anything? Shouldn't Mickey Loomis owe him for being such a great football coach? Hmm, well... Mickey Loomis covered up this Vicodin scandal? Oh, yeah! Maybe Sean Payton knows Mickey Loomis is solid. The guy is beyond dirty. In fact, he's filthy. And Roger Goodell in the NFL shouldn't just look to get him out of New Orleans for the year, which they did with the Bounty Gate suspension. No, no. They should look to get him out of the league, period. The guy is filthy. Beyond filthy. And I just scratched the surface. In regards to those stories. There is undoubtedly way more out there. And we may find it out here in the coming months. We'll see. Heading on to our third down segment. It's where I say a statement. Big up or slow down. I, I say a statement, excuse me. And then I express my agreement or disagreement with it. Here we go. By saying the phrases big up or slow down. Statement number one. Can we tell anything? From the Giants and Steelers game last Sunday, given that the Giants were facing, given what the Giants were facing, most of their players still without power at the time of game, you know, distraught family situations, etc. And of course, our thoughts and wishes continue to go out to those affected by Hurricane Sandy. And the fact that the Pittsburgh Steelers didn't even make the trip to New York, or really to New Jersey for the Meadowlands, until Sunday morning. Uh, given the extenuating circumstances around this game, can we take anything from it? Of course, it was a 24-20 Steelers victory. Um, I say big up. I say we can't take something from the game. Uh, maybe not necessarily as much from the Giants, but I think the Steelers really showed a lot in that game. They didn't, they didn't get there to the Meadowlands until Sunday morning, so travel was not on their side. Um, Jonathan Dyer was out at running back. Isaac Redman had to step in. And ran for over 100 yards in a TD. So the run game did not miss a beat, regardless of who was in there. The offensive line for the Steelers has been criticized over the past couple years, and rightfully so. But they played well in this game, especially late, holding off that Giants pass rush. Uh, the defense, still without Troy Palomalu, I thought played rather physically. Uh, Ryan Clark's hit on Victor Cruz in the end zone wasn't dirty, by the way. Clark didn't even lead with his helmet. And uh, Lamar Woodley's strip sack of Eli Manning at the end was terrific football. Hard-nosed, physical, Steeler football, if I may say that. Uh, the Steelers held the Giants scoreless in the fourth quarter, which is something few teams can say. Uh, they have a, quietly have built a very good receiving core with Mike Wallace, Emmanuel Sanders, Antonio Brown, 
Heath Miller, I think, is still a real good tight end. Uh, great target in the red zone for Ben Roethlisberger. Uh, and the Steelers aren't even healthy yet. They haven't been healthy in running at running back, and they've mixed and matched in the O-line. And on defense, they've been without arguably their most influential player back there, Troy Palomalu. Uh, but they're still getting it done, and they're winning games. And the Ravens did win this past week against Cleveland, but they played Cleveland and needed a late comeback to squeak past the Browns. Uh, Pittsburgh plays Kansas City tomorrow night. And then Baltimore... Stuff's getting real up there in the AFC North. I think Pittsburgh will prove they are the best team in that division, especially with the injuries the Ravens are facing on defense. Uh, and the fact they have Joe Flacco. And Joe Flacco falls on his face in more big games than he doesn't. The opposite can be said for the Steelers and what they do over there. Uh, so, I'm not a huge fan of the Steelers organization, but I give credit where credit is due. We can't take credit from that win against New York at New York. A good win for the Steelers. And they have shown once again to be at the top of the AFC playoff picture. Now the Patriots acquired troubled cornerback Akib Tlaib at the trade deadline last week. Tlaib is currently serving a suspension for performance-enhancing drug use. He got into a fight at a rookie symposium in 2008 with Tampa Bay, got arrested for assaulting a taxi driver in 2011, and arrested for assault with a deadly weapon this past summer. In Texas, by the way. So, Tlaib ran afoul of gun laws in Texas. Not an easy feat. Big up or slow down. The Patriot way is dead. Hmm. Yes, big up. The Patriot way is dead. In fact, I would say the Patriot way never existed. It was always a myth. It was always a farce. Last year, the Patriots brought in Albert Hainsworth. They brought in Randy Moss. They brought in Corey Dillon. And the list goes on. The Patriot way was always about getting good players. This whole thing about character is largely a farce. The Patriots, like every other team in the NFL, will take on a bad seed if they believe that the bad seed can fit in and help them win. And the Patriots have one of the worst secondaries in football. They have not developed a cornerback since Asante Samuel in the early portion of the 2000s. They need a corner who can cover, who can play one-on-one, -on -one, who can hold his end on his end of the, who can hold his own on his end of the field. And Talib, when healthy, and when his head is screwed on correctly, has shown to be that guy. He had six interceptions a couple years ago at Tampa Bay. I believe two or three of his interceptions in his career have been have been returned for touchdowns. The guy is an athlete, a legitimate athlete at corner. And he is undoubtedly, at least by skill level, the best quarterback on the Patriots. Tlaib was acquired because he can help this team. And Bill Belichick believes he has enough high-character guys on the Patriots, I think Vince Wolfork will lead the charge here on defense, uh, to get Tlaib's head screwed on straight. Tlaib has something to play for. He's in the final year of his contract. He's an impending free agent. It would be in his best interest to play well in the second half of the season for the Patriots, play well in the postseason. And do what so many others have done. Curtail your Patriots' success onto the free agent market and have it result in you being offered a big contract that should theoretically set you up for the rest of your life. Akib Tlaib was acquired because the Patriots believe it's the right fit. Akib Tlaib was acquired because the Patriots believe he is, was the most talented corner on the market, and they desperately need help at cornerback. His character, 
had nothing to do with it. Character has never had anything to do with it for players who could help. Maybe for marginal guys, when deciding, you know, the 53rd guy on the roster, you take a look at character. But the Patriots, like every other team, if they believe it's a good fit, if they believe the player can help, they acquire that player. Always have, always will, and that's okay. That's fine. But let's stop perpetuating this Patriots way myth. It's never been true. And after this Aqib Tlaib acquisition, it most certainly cannot be true. Rex Ryan was voted most overrated coach in the league this week. He garnered 45% of the vote. NFL players voted in this poll. So big up or slow down. Is Rexy Ryan the most overrated coach in the NFL? Are the players correct? Interesting to note, Bill Belichick was second on that list. Or is second on that list, I should say. Uh, I say no. Slow down. Rex Ryan is not the most overrated coach in the league. Now he has a lot of bluster. It's good, it's good to knock him down a peg. When he guarantees Jets playoff and Super Bowl victories. And of course he hasn't delivered on a Super Bowl victory. But he took the Jets to the AFC Championship game in 2009. Took them to the AFC title game in 2010. In those two years, the Jets won four road playoff games. Yet collapsed under him at the end last season. They finished at 8-8 eight and eight and missed the playoffs. But big picture, 8-8 eight and eight is 500. It's not 6-10. and 10, It's not 5-11. and 11, It's 8-8. Eight and eight. And yes, this year the Jets are 3-5, and five, but I would argue it wasn't that talented nor deep of a roster to begin with, and it almost certainly isn't now, with Mark Sanchez still at quarterback, and Darrell Rivas out for the season, and Santonio Holmes out for a long duration of time, and Dustin Keller was out for a bit as well. It's not a great roster over there with the Jets. It just isn't, you know? In the quarterback position, it's tough to win with that in this league. And Rex Ryan found a way to do it in 2009 and 2010. The Jets made it to the AFC title game in both of those years. So, it's easy to hate on Rex Ryan, and I do it a lot too. And I think Rex Ryan is a buffoon at times. But, his record as a head coach is pretty damn respectable. Especially given a lot of what he's had to deal with in New York. Now, some of it is self-inflicted, yes, but... Tim Tebow wasn't self-inflicted. It seems pretty apparent to me that Ryan and the coaching staff uh, were against the Tebow acquisition, considering the fact they don't ever play him. Um, I think a lot of the turmoil there has to be attributed to that goofball owner over there, Woody Johnson. Yeah, the same guy who said he would rather see a Mitt Romney presidential victory than the Jets than a Jets win. Hmm, not what you want to hear from your owner. So. Is Rex Ryan an overrated coach? Maybe, by the bluster. But is he the most in the league? The most overrated coach? No. He's not. Far from it. Our fourth down segment is the final segment of the show. It's the Reamer rant. And I'm a little unhappy this week because last week should have been a great week for the NFL. And I'm not talking last weekend when the games were played. I'm talking mid-last week. Should have been a great week for the NFL because last week was the NFL trade deadline, which was pushed back to Thursday due to Hurricane Sandy. But it didn't have to be pushed back to Thursday because no one makes trades. That's what was so great about the Patriots acquiring Aqib Tlaib from Tampa Bay for a fourth round pick. It was a trade, a legitimate, honest to goodness trade that should theoretically make an impact in the playoff picture. But there were no other deals of consequence made. None whatsoever. Steven Jackson was on the block, wasn't traded. On and on the list goes. 
players who should be traded who aren't traded because for whatever reason, trades aren't made in the NFL. And it makes no sense to me. The NFL markets the hell out of everything. The draft is the biggest thing ever. And no sane, healthy person has heard in 90% of the players selected each April. And I will stand by those statements. If you know more than 10 or 15% of those players selected in April, you are not a sane, you are not a healthy person. Right? You sit your ass on the couch all Sunday watching football and Thursday night and Monday. Wait, is Saturday too? Get out. Breathe the air a little bit. Come on. So the draft, when everyone's just talking out of his or her you-know-what, is the biggest event ever. No one's heard in 90% of the players. But yet, that's a huge thing. Free agency. The NFL has pushed the midnight deadline up to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That is a major event. That takes over March. March is no... That takes over March. March is no longer March Madness Month. No, March is NFL free agency. The NFL markets the hell out of everything, and they do a great job at it. So why don't they market the trade deadline? Why isn't the trade deadline a big deal? Why doesn't the league encourage teams to make trades? Give them credit towards their salary cap. Do something to make trading enticing. There are ways to do it. I would focus on cap implications. We get everything in the NFL. Everything is marketed to the upteenth degree. We should get the trade deadline too. We get the draft. God. So let's get the trade deadline. Involving players who we all have actually heard of. And players who we know will make an immediate impact. Like, right away. Except for Tlaib's case, because he's still serving a PED suspension. But still! We get everything in the NFL. Everything is shoved down our throats. And we swallow all of it! <laughs> Maybe that wasn't the best analogy to use. So I'll stop here and say... We get everything in the NFL. We should get the trade deadline, too. And the fact that we still don't get an NFL trade deadline like we do in baseball, basketball, or even hockey enrages me and causes me to use inappropriate analogies. Let's wrap up the show. Episode number 24 of the Football Nation Today podcast is in the books. Thank you all for listening. Again, hopefully we provided a 40-minute or so distraction for those of you who are upset about how this year's election went, presidential, congressional, local offices, etc. We are slowly but surely returning back to normalcy in this country. And again, hopefully all who could have made it out and cast about yesterday did so. Uh, as always, if you want to get in touch with me, feel free to email me. My email address is areamer at bu.edu. That's A-R-E-I-M-E-R at bu.edu. My Twitter handle is at AlexRemer1 if you want to be new age and contact me via social media. And also feel free to leave a comment on our show page on footballnation.com. It's Football Nation Today. Thanks go out to all of you for listening. Enjoy your first full week and enjoy uh, your second full weekend in November. I'm sorry. Where does time go? Uh, so long, everybody. Thank you for listening. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy the games this week. We'll talk to you next on Football Nation Today, next Wednesday.